welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. We had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Tanya Vetter on the why of one's academic pursuits. The audio on the introduction portion, however, had been corrupted. And so this conversation gets started just as we began really having the conversation. Enjoy. I thought I'd tell a quick story about when I went to college as a freshman, uh, my, my best friend and I went to the, to the laundromat. Uh, and my mom had taught me how to, to do the wash, and I did it well. Uh, but Randy decided that he um, was going to do his what? What it came down to was I spent about oh an extra five minutes folding my sheets, and Randy had just bunched his up and put him in his laundry basket. And every time we go to the laundry mat, it took me an extra five minutes because I had fold my sheets just to take them back to the dorm and then put them on the the bed. And every time Randy would ask, "Why do you do that? Why do you?" fold your sheets. Well, I don't know. It's just what I was told to do. Um, and it took me a while to realize he has a point. And asking why would save me about good, a good five minutes. Um, that's a silly example of the kinds of things we tend to do without really digging in and asking, is there a problem with having wrinkled sheets? Um, is there what is the reason for this? And the reason for this was just reflexive. It was just that I was following through on something that I'd been told I needed to do, um, but hadn't really thought about whether I wanted to do it or not. Um, and I think that relates to this question of why are we in school? And, and Peter, I know that when you were when you were with our institution and you would recruit students, that was a big part of the conversation you would have with students at the beginning was try and understand why are you interested in this? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, uh, one's motivation, um, will either pardon the expression, Peter out or push one on through. Cause it's not an easy program. No doctoral programs easy. And, and so, trying to clarify the motivations early on and almost always they're mixed and they they're dynamic too. They change over time. And, you know, if we think back over our doctoral experiences as students, um, I was uh, in my forties and I had very primarily clear um, career related uh, reasons, but they changed as I went through you know, because I fell in love with certain things and other things. And so my purpose shifted anyway, but I do have, I did have that conversation with, with students. I do now when I get a doc advisee and they're stuck, you know, in that transition from courses to dissertation, which is a common place to be stuck. And, and I say, why do you even want to finish this program? And I kind of phrase it that way to kind of push them a little bit because I don't want them to assume that's the right thing to do to finish the program. Sometimes it's not. Maybe not the right thing to do. That's a good point, Peter. You know, um, interesting enough, I just got a student from a very prominent Houston um, from a college. I won't say the name of it. And it's taken her nine years 
So she's everything. She's, you know, everything but a dissertation. Right. And I asked her, why do you want this degree? And she gave one of the classic answers we've heard of before, which is um, because of a deceased parent. And that's a good start. But it may not get you to the finish line. And I'll tell you why. Because it will not impact someone who's here. Whose life will that change that's here? So that's a good starting point. But what is, a, what is the consequence of you not finishing? There's no consequence connected to that. As your, loved opposed one, your loved one will still be, this is sick, but your loved one will still be dead, right? I mean, unless, it's a harsh reality. And that's You're what right. I told her. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I told her, she's paying me to tell her the truth, correct? Mm-hmm. All right, so I told her, hey, let, let's shed a few tears. But at the end of the day, there's no consequence if you don't finish. And that's why it's been nine years. So we have to look at it again. Who's, let's look at your study. So we looked at her study. Whose life are you trying to impact in your study? And we found a consequence. Let's talk a little bit about what some of those, how those motivations might change as one goes through that experience. Even if you go through relatively quickly, if you're able to do an EDD in a few years, you're still probably going to be changing quite a bit as you go through that process. How do you see those motivations and the whys shifting over time? I think it depends on what the barriers are. In my opinion, what I found is it depends on what the barriers are. So if you're dealing with personal barriers, that's one thing you deal with that. If you're dealing with professional barriers that, that, you know, that's a different thing, but it depends on what the barrier is. And that's what I found. Let's get to what the barrier is and deal with it. If it's time management, that's one issue. But here's the thing. If you're trying to, um, if the issue is a insecurity, then let's deal with the fact that you're asking an education to solve a problem that it was not designed to solve. So if you want this, talk more about, talk more about that, Tanya. Yeah. So we have, we have students who want to be more respected. You're getting it because you want to be more respected. You're getting it because you want to be liked. You want power, you know, or let's be, okay. Now you guys know when we got ours, the people who still didn't like us, probably like they didn't like us anymore. If not, they hated us. <laughs> it's going to be a reason to hate you. Come on, v. <laughs> right? Oh, now you think you're educated. That's true. That's true. I got, I got more grief after I finished the degree. It's not going to fix those problems. Absolutely. They didn't come and apologize, right? Um, you know, one of the, you know, absentee fathers are still absent. Like, okay, right? It, the big checks don't pour in once you cross the stage. And that's one of the big misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Like they think they're going to get a job overnight because now they have the letters in front of their name. Like all of these things, they don't happen. So I deal with the misconceptions on the front end when I ask the question, are you feeding your insecurity or trying to fulfill the purpose on the front end? What's, what's the barrier? Right. Because as long as the personal issues aren't dealt with, it's going to go on, drag on and on and on. Now, the purpose, you can deal with that a little quickly than you can the insecurity. The insecurity, that's that lineage. That's that family stuff. That's that personal therapy counseling. That's why I say chairs are like life coaches. 
I love the line yeah, from I, Ben Folds where he says, uh, everywhere I go, darn, there I am. He doesn't say darn, but <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right that trying to do this for the purpose of healing oneself of, mm-hmm. of one's insecurities is, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's not going to be effective. And second of all, your insecurities are actually going to be exacerbated when I uh, mm-hmm. give you feedback on your paper. <laughs> for sure. I, I think that, um, you know, when I was 18, I was not, I had no purpose for going to college except the family said you will go to college. And I really struggled for about three years. Stopped, uh, met my husband, got married, not that that's the trajectory everyone will take. But when I had children, I suddenly had a purpose. I wanted to do this for my, first of all, for my children. And uh, I'd never been a straight A student, and suddenly I was because I had that purpose, and I and I worked on the the lack of confidence in being able to do scholarly things, you know. And I really think you've hit on that there. There has to be a purpose beyond just fixing whatever is messing yourself. That can be part of what happens along the way, but that's not that can't be your purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, look at the consequence. So look at the, con- the consequence would have been, your children would have been affected. That's a powerful consequence. That's a powerful consequence. And I think that is, so this time, now when I'm looking at the lady that has come to me, we had to find a consequence, right? Now, here's her consequence. They're gonna charge, charge me as an out-of-state student. I'm hitting statute of limitation. Now the consequence is there. You know, we, we've got a stack of consequences now. Now she's going to get it done. I think one of the, one of the conversations I have with, um, or part of the conversation I have with advisees is that their dissertation, particularly, again, going back to that, that juncture, that transition between taking classes, which everybody at the doc level knows how to take and pass a class. I mean, they're just good at that, but then doing it doing their own research is another ball game, another ball of wax. And so that transition is challenging. And I, I say, you know, what do you want to be really good at? So it's a kind of a personal development because then you can be of benefit, a blessing to others. You can grow and develop if you decide what do you really want to develop here in this research part of your doctoral journey, who do you want to be at the end of this? And so it's, it's, uh, it becomes more of a, not just what, what do I want my social identity to be? I'm going to be a doctor, which, you know, that's all kind of always an element, but if that's, but who do you want to be? I want to be a person who's very knowledgeable, who can help others, who can help, you know, you know, maybe even, you know, uh, earn more money helping others, but certainly do good, do well in, in whatever community I'm going to be moving in. Peter, I appreciate that. And I think one of the things we have to come to terms with is that higher ed has become very, very bad at helping students think through in, in, in those terms. Um, we used to be good at it, um, but with the, you know, with the clinicalization of higher education, and I'm thinking all the way back to the late 19th century, 
we began to kind of separate, you know, and there were reasons for this, but to thinking about separating faith and learning so that we didn't try to infect one with the other. And one of the consequences of that is that education has largely been talked about in very personal ways. How does this serve your needs and what will you be able to do with your education? What will, uh, how will this affect your life? What will you, how much money will you make? Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with making money, obviously, but if that's the purpose, then we've robbed students of this conversation about higher education as a public good. It does not surprise me that for some in our, in our public square, we're having to convince them that Pell Grants are useful to society, not to the student who receives the Pell Grant, not merely to the student who receives the Pell Grant, but to society itself. We're having to make those arguments because we've done a really bad job of making those arguments. We've not talked to students about what they intend to do with their degree. And this is it's a problem with higher education. Some of us work for Christian institutions. I think even Christian institutions have missed uh, some real opportunities uh, to make this happen. I, I was thinking about uh, one of the things when, when you guys were talking, I remember education being more about problem solving. You know, I remember us being eager to, to solve problems and I don't see that happening um, in my new role and position. I took the job because I felt like students were not being prepared for the world we actually lived in, right? And the, act, the world we will live in. So I'm a virtual instructional specialist. And I used to work for a company in China um, and teach for a company in China, which they changed how I thought about education. And now I feel like I fit in because we are all being um, forced to teach virtually, right? But we used to think about what problems I want to solve. And that's what I thought this degree is about, you know, that's what I think it should be about, who I want to serve, what problems I want to solve. To me, the why has to be connected to that. Um, and that's the conversation that I think we should be having. I think we've focused more on the business model and we've gotten away from that. And so now, guess what? So has the student. So has the student. And that's no surprise that if we're, we're selling our programs as as career advancement tools as certification tools which in education we do that all the time it's like come take our principal master's degree and you'll have a guaranteed almost guaranteed 95 percent pass rate our graduates do on the principal certification exam and so it's all the technical skill development which you know actually goes way back before goes back to greek times about the arguments about the what, what is the good of education? Is it um, a personal development and public good, or is it technical skill development? That's been going on since Aristotle or Plato or somebody way back long ago. Hey, and I think that's a great point. I think we were kind of lying to ourselves in the, in, the, in the 18th century, for example, of just assuming that everything was about public good. It was about it was about a certain sector of, <laughs> of men, right, from a certain uh, social stratus who were actually uh, invited to this. So if we can cast a, a, a very colored lens on that experience and make it look better than it was. I've had these discussions with some of my um, offspring. 
I, I won't name which ones. I'll just uh, just say that in general in case by some stroke of bad luck they happen to listen to this. I don't know. Uh, but they've had, they've really argued with me about uh, my undergraduate degree didn't prepare me for a job to make money. It just, and I said, you know, an undergraduate institution, it's a liberal arts institution. It does prepare you for life. If you think about it broadens your thinking, it broadens your perspectives on the world. It, it opens up to you things that you haven't thought about. And, and this one offspring went to a very uh, uh, broadly defined liberal arts institution that really looked at uh, the world broadly, the world deeply. Um, A lot of really um, good thinking went on there. And this, this child went off to do a service project after college. And I, um, I, I worry that they're now focused that I'm so angry at liberal arts because it didn't, I don't have a high paying job now that I'm out. And I I don't really know what else to say about that, except um, I don't think that's quite right. That's not a purpose, getting a high paying job, but it seems to be a focus. You know, I heard that from friends, uh, parents of my children's friends growing up, you know, well, they, they, the band is nice, but I don't want it to be a credit course because they need to do well in math, science, and STEM courses, you know, because my kid's going to be an engineer and they're going to make a lot of money. Uh, and, and, and you can be an engineer. There's nothing wrong with being an engineer, but if your purpose in being an engineer, because it's a high paying field right now, I, I just don't think that's going to be satisfying. And it's not a place from where you can bloom. I, I wonder if there's a beautiful, and, and, you know, I guess I should say I'm learning that there is a beautiful balance. I think the joy is finding it, you know, um, finding it, right? And what that number is, is different for everybody, but having the space to find it, I think is freedom. And I think for me, that's the biggest thing is freedom. And there, there's no price that comes with that. But I think there's a balance in finding it. That's a good, that's a good question, though, you have. I like that question. My, my father was in uh, business and marketing his whole, all of my childhood. And, you know, but his undergraduate degree was in English, which is really almost frowned upon today to have an undergrad in English. What do you yeah. do with that? He did a lot. It, it opened up so many doors for him to find his purpose uh, and his career. And he loved it so much that after he retired, he went back to writing and um, wrote a lot of poetry. And I, I think it was intertwined with his purpose, you know, and, and it gave him the freedom like you talked about. When I was, I worked at Texas Instruments for a while as a linguist and in a, in a computer science research center. And somebody thought it was really funny. They put in the, in the bathroom stalls, in one of the stalls, they put a roll of toilet paper that each sheet said, liberal arts degree, please take one. <laughs> it was kind of the, you know, a dig on the value of a liberal arts degree. And uh, I thought it was funny. I also thought it was funny that they needed me with my liberal arts degree. They needed me there so that we could get some work done. 
I, I think that it's easy for us uh, to assume that the value of an education is monetary because we live in a culture that really defines the good in specifically in quantifying the, the value money-wise. And even if it's not my own money, even if it's society's benefit, it's still in, you know, we have, we live in a capitalist society that really defines goods uh, with a dollar symbol. I, I'm not saying we should, well, I'll have a conversation about whether we should or shouldn't. That's not a, that's not a judgment. I'm just saying if that why exists within the culture, you can accidentally believe that that's the why. I think one of the tensions, though, Scott, is that, I mean, we have, I have the luxury of getting a liberal arts degree, which I did undergrad, without a very clear career focus. I had, and it wasn't that my family was rich, they were teachers, and so, but we had what we needed. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's a great point. and so, I could come out with a bachelor's degree in Spanish, which is what I did, um, and think, okay, now what am I going to do? And then go teach English abroad for a few years and try to figure things out. And gradually, the 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 career piece of it comes into focus. But I had a pretty darn good support system around me. And I think it was a luxury that I don't often think about. And in today's lingo, it would call it a privilege, right? right. Um, that I did not recognize as being, because I thought, well, we're not rich. You know, we're very kind of middle, middle class. We couldn't go three months without a, without a, um, you know, without a paycheck, <laughs> without going belly up, Right. And this is where I think mentors played a role tremendously in my life. I want to say, um, I want to give respect to my mentors because I could not have done what I did last month without them. There were strong women that I saw do it. And I think that's important. Um, It's when you're figuring it out to see people who have already done it and do it well and give yourself space to fail at it and fail big at it, right? I think that's important why you're still, because like you said, the why changes. Like my why changed so much, dude, I don't even know. It changed so much. It's still changing. It's still morphing. Like my boss just resigned. So my wife's getting ready to change and amp up again, right? So it, it continues to change and allowing, the, the word is adaptability. This world we live in, you've got to create space for change to happen and for that why to continue to change. That's part of the success a recipe. That's, the, that's a part of it. So mentors in my eyesight, they were they were really huge in being a part of that. Why continuing to just be flexible and let it change? Yeah, and I think you bring up the point. You know, is when you bring up mentors, I mentioned you know my family is support, but but we when we have a good, healthy uh, social support network around us that often we've built because we've gone out and searched for some of it we inherited and we just have it and um it, it it gives us the ability i think and this a little bit of space to adapt to changes to our changes that are going on internally our development our shifting purposes and identities and so forth 
and to make mistakes too, you know, because we have people around us that can help us get up. Talk to us a little bit, uh, Tanya, about, um, you mentioned the term scarcity mindset. What is the um, a kind of, what's the problem with having a scarcity mindset and what's the other side of that from your point of view? So the way I work with um, scarcity mindset um, when I talk to the people that I work with um, is believing that there's not enough, believing that you have to compete with each other. Um, and I'll just deal with it culturally because that's the way I, that's the way I experience it. Right. So being led to believe that there's not enough. Um, if you watch the news, you'll believe that you have to compete. Um, you have to hurry up and do this thing because if you don't, someone else will take it. Um, and what I did was I started living my life very differently. Even when I interact, um, from a business perspective, I don't treat people like they don't have enough money. Um, because, Uh, If I do that, then I'll rush and make rash decisions because I think somebody else will get it. I I don't do that. I don't hoard. I'm a giver because I believe there's more than enough than God would provide. Um, My needs are met. I operate like that. But that has to be unlearned. Scarcity is a mindset that we grow up with, many of us, some of us. Um, And it has nothing to do with race, right? If you watch certain things on TV, it can be fed to you, right? And it's something that has to be unlearned. It's in our language, right? Money don't grow on trees, mm-hmm. right? Just simple sayings. Um, and now on the opposite side is abundance. You know, all of my needs are met. Instead of saying I have to spend my money, I say I'm investing my money. Um, I have to go to work. I get to go to work. Just making shifts in the language that we use um, kind of helps me unlearn some of the things that I've been taught innocently, right? Because our parents didn't mean to teach. They only gave us what they were given, which is the very best that they had to give. But it does a number on us. So I noticed a difference in my life in all areas of my life, scarcity, not just financially, but scarcity in relationships, scarcity, um, you know, intellectually, scarcity, it, it can cover, it can come in all different forms, right? So the first time I was introduced to this was when I went to a time management seminar in 1991. And one of the things that Hiram Smith, uh, who ran the seminar, suggested that we think about is uh, to stop using the phrase, I don't have time mm. and to start using the phrase, I choose not to use my time this way. Absolutely. And it was all about this, that scarcity mindset becomes it, it's language that we use that becomes self-fulfilling. It creates the scarcity and it creates this sense of that. I'm, um, uh, I might lose instead of instead of taking responsibility, which is really what I needed to do in order to take responsibility for my time, I needed to take responsibility for my use of that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's culture shocking to some people, right? And even how I, different things I do with my body, um, because the body responds when you do something new. It's like, whoa, wait, we're not used to this. It's like, you said, what? I have all the time in the world. That sounds ridiculous to, to the brain. It's like, wait, no, you don't. No, yes, I do. 
how I spend it, right, um, is a different story, right? How I choose to spend it is a different story. It's not important enough for me, right? Mm -hmm. You say, even when I say a certain number, when someone asks me to do work for them, my body will respond differently because the number will sound crazy because we all have a threshold that we've been programmed for. And if I go over that number, the body will react a certain way, right? And I intentionally go over that number to unprogram myself because God owns everything and I am his child, right? So why am I limiting him if I'm made in his image? Right. So things like that, breaking the mode of, of that scarcity mindset. Okay.